We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. And, and as I said, I think it's been a terrible, terrible mistake, uh, you know, or shadow side of the fact that the contemplative renewal really got running in that, that whole 1980s Reagan me generation, uh, that we thought about it as my little self-realization, my little lifestyle. I've got to do my centering prayer. I've got to, you know, uh, it, you know, it's it it's become it was far too narcissistic from the start, far too entitled from the start, and we now have to to pay the price of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know you even get the idea that you know when you stand outside a Trappist monastery that the only way that you can really be a serious contemplative is to go and give your life in a monastery. And, and I think, again, that's a misunderstanding that, you know, when you're back in a monastery, it's, it can be as screaming and noisy and, and, and insistent as any other place. But a, a monastery is a laboratory where a certain depth of silence is deliberately cultivated on behalf of the whole in terms of what you might call extraordinary conditions. But they're not privileged conditions and they're not sustainable apart from the whole and their frame of references in the whole. So we have to keep remembering that and, and easing the gap. Uh, the purpose of, of contemplation is to make us responsive and skillful actors at what we must do, not to shield us from action uh, which must happen. See, I really appreciate yeah. that. Uh, that's wonderful because it changes the language for me about, it be, because the word urgency can make it like, make me scared. And yeah. it, it shifts it to something else where you're saying, can we change the word? We still need to act and we need to act in the moment. We need to act now, but it's not an urgent act. It's a something else act. It's an important act. It's an essential act. It needs to be done on the behalf of myself and my brothers and sisters in the world and the whole universe. But don't come from this space of grasping and, and breathlessness, you know? It's a timeless action, and it brings that dimension of kairos into the, the searing nanosecond of the now. Yeah, and it, doesn't, and it doesn't take us off the hook. It doesn't— No, it doesn't. You have to act. You have to act. As long as you're in human flesh, that's the cost of your arising. Uh, Cynthia, first of all, this is, I'm, I'm getting so much out of this conversation, but, you know, one of the concerns that, that I have had and that I think that we on the podcast have had has been precisely what you just spoke to, that, that the contemplative kind of culture that we have in America today in some ways does seem to be very privileged and you know, very much with a hefty price tag, that kind of thing. And um, and so you know, I guess the question I have for you is: those of us who want to dismantle the privilege or the injustice within the contemplative world, what 
thoughts would you have for us? How do we make contemplation more accessible and more egalitarian and more meeting the needs of, of the community as a whole? Well, I'd say the first thing, Carl, is a uh... Well, the first thing is to commend you for even having that question, because uh, it's a question that, 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 that is still so rarely surfaced across the network, uh, you know, that, uh, that you don't see your own entitlement. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, I, I think that there's an inner dimension and an outer dimension. And uh, the inner dimension is really included in a, a quote from uh, Meister Eckhart, who says, there are many who would follow Christ halfway, but not the other half. And something separates the sheep from the goats. There's a lot of soft contemplation, and there's a little hard contemplation. And the soft contemplation, which we've been basically catering to, is the parting of the waters now in COVID, you know, that, that we have built this, this very, very entitled contemplative in, industry where people are going, go off to their gorgeous monastic retreats and have these wonderful experiences with gurus and, you know, and, and feel like they're, you know, yet another step closer to enlightenment. That, that all came to a screeching halt in COVID. And, and we're going to see that the, that the contemplatives are the ones that show up. And I think there's going to be a real kind of thinning of the ranks and that this is going to be good. Uh, I'm seeing in my own groups that when there is action that's done with integrity and courage, a couple of things happen immediately. Um, that, that the male-female balance equalizes and the gender balance equalizes. I haven't, I haven't had an awful lot of experience with, a, with a race imbalance because the parts of the world I'm, uh, I'm in don't lend themselves to that. But I would maintain that it is probably true there, particularly as we, as we are able uh, less and less to confuse contemplation as a inner spiritual attitude with contemplation in the, in the outer forms it's been uh, passed on in. You know, so, you know, that the contemplation as we've known it, as you've written it up in your book, you know, when you did your big, big book of mysticism, uh, I think they were uh, overwhelmingly celibate males because that's, that's where the major flow of the river came. And so we have a, a, a tradition which has, has taken this, this, this formless water of contemplation and packaged it in that form. And, and in that way, it's tended to disregard other forms, uh, African forms and indigenous forms and devalue them. And as we learn not to do that by different cultures jostling up against each other and being able to, to sing and chant and pray and meditate in each other's languages, that may soften. So I, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to seeing that. But I really think that the, the core thing is the question of integrity and courage. That uh, there's, there's nothing that communicates like somebody showing up. And like somebody being able to move quietly out from wherever their practice puts them to do what has to be done in the world without calling excessive attention to themselves or without a backlog of anger and judgment. And those people, even though they, they may not be noticed because they deliberately don't stand out from the pack, 
do make their influence known energetically. And that if contemplation for a Christian is simply the means by which we can more faithfully and more, uh, you know, more authentically and more realistically walk the path of Christ, then it's the Christic path that will validate us and not our, you know, our contemplative lifestyle and our designer cushions and all the little Greek icons we have. Yeah. This is, this is really a helpful conversation for me. I love what you said. Contemplative life takes away urgency when you can act spaciously within the instantaneous now. It was very helpful. So I'm going to shift us a little bit. We've talked a lot about death and amid our lives right now, grief is everywhere. And it, it always has been. And yet here we are more openly, perhaps waiting in grief together. How do we tend to the grief of this moment? Well, I would say don't get stuck in it. That there's grief, yes, and grief will always come when we look backwards and we see what's lost. But there's something very interesting happening in this moment, too. Sometimes you just have to let the whole plant get cut back, you know, and I had to take my, my poor old peach tree down almost to the stump uh, to save its life. You know, certainly there was grief at all these branches that I had to lop off that didn't get to have their leaves. But the peach tree is alive and it's barren, barren peaches now. Uh, and, and I kind of remember that little peach tree as I, you know, I look out the window at it right now. But think, you know, we're probably by, by the most realistic and sober estimates about halfway through the planetary march through the pandemic. And uh, which means we've got as much time to log ahead of us as we've logged behind us. And it's, it's probably, you know, wish fulfillment to think otherwise and to plan otherwise. But as the knife cuts deeper, you can also begin to see the emergence of some genuine newness, some new hopes, some new configurations. Uh, and I would, I would want to let that balance, you know, you know, and, and balance the grief so that it's possible to grieve sincerely for what must go. Uh, but it's at the same time to, to, to open the heart, the quiet heart to what's coming uh, held in a deeper faith. It's a, for me, a Teardian faith that this whole thing is still serenely in the hands uh, of, you know, of evolution leading us to the fullness of love. And, and it's absolutely clear that, that the human beings had become an invasive metastatic species in the planet, you know, messing with the climate, messing with, you know, messing with the stratosphere, messing with the airwaves, you know, polluting, raping, destroying species. I mean, we've, you know, we are cancer. Let's, let's not mince words. We are cancer in the planetary body. And so, of course, the planet with its own intrinsic intelligence and, and, and balance has to take us in hand and prune us. And it does so impartially. And so there's, you know, there's, there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's also that deeper sense, if you can just shift into that frame, that 
that some higher intelligence than our own self-centeredness is guiding this to wholeness. And uh, again, to bring it back to, uh, to contemplation again, one of the beautifully salvific things about contemplation during this time is that when you really enter the silence, you can sense that. Because you stop talking and, and reacting and emoting and because you stop looking at things from a fixed reference point, like when you're a fixed reference point and the shore is passing away, you feel grief. But when you're no longer a fixed reference point, nothing's passing away anymore. Everything is just passing, you know, as it always does. So grief is in some sense mitigated just by the, the natural vibrancy of, uh, of life in all its ever fluctuating forms. And in that still gathered stillness, in that unboundary intimate presence, you always find yourself to be, you begin to trust that something you can't see is, is uh, holding, holding you, holding the whole thing. You're reminding me of the essay uh, you wrote about the night before the election in 2016. Oh, yeah. When you were, I think you were in Tintern Abbey. Is that where you were? <laughs> I was. Yeah. Here we are facing another election and, and all of the kind of angst that goes with that and what that might represent, you know, and, and recognizing that no matter who wins, a lot of the dynamics that are at play aren't going to go away. And so, you know, we've still, we've still got a lot of work to do uh, socially and, and individually as well. But, you know, when, when I think about something like the, you know, the, the systemic uh, violence against black men on the part of law enforcement, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. Of course, I'm a privileged white man, but I'm overwhelmed in terms of how, how I respond. Uh, and I'm just curious what, you know, to, to really bring this conversation down to earth, what do you see in terms of that trust, bringing that radical trust and that courage and that fearlessness to bear to this particular moment? I mean, what would you say to the people who are protesting and to um, leaders in the Black, Live, uh, Black Lives Matter movement and how we can continue to really try to dismantle racism in our, in our culture? Any thoughts there? Well, one impression, you know, I don't want to sound like an idiot, uh, but... Uh, That's my job. <laughs> yeah, that's all I one of my most powerful impressions of this whole torturous unfolding of the spring is that, you know, in the wake of the protests, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter, that was the one thing that had enough centrifugal power in the, in the human imagination to get people out of their houses, to demonstrate, to protest it, it the, the sense that, that of moral revulsion at, at having exposed just the extent of this, uh, this brutality this, and, uh, and this, this racist-based brutality, just, you know, it finally galvanized something in the soul saying, you know, I don't, I don't care if I, you know, contract COVID out there standing up for what I need to say about this moral outrage. I'm there. And, and so for me, that was the most moving demonstration of courage and, and of real change all spring because something touched, something cut through that pervasive, you know, self-perfect 
self-protective isolationism we've all put ourselves in in the name of safety. And it was a little bit of a taste of the collective plight of our humanity. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, when I said I didn't want to sound like an idiot, I know that, that it's not going to be an easy uh, road to dismantle racism. Uh, it's so deep, it's so pervasive, and, you know, in a deep way, it's accounting for how the whole last four years have rolled. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's really touched off these, these, these insidious currents that were in remission in the American collective cycle, and they're not in remission anymore, they're out in the open. And so how this gets dealt with, I don't know. I know it's on our plate. And, and I know that, that no matter which way the election swings, uh, we will have a slightly different combination of the cards in the deck, but they're the same cards in either case. And it's the same journey, whichever, whoever winds up holding the spade. And so I think for us, and you know, this comes back to the other question, and, and I, I believe it is really a high, uh, high priority, is to is to reach out understanding just the way that racism has riddled and crippled our country. To, to redouble the efforts to understand what contemplation means in, in races other than the, the dominant white culture. And to re-revision and to partner in contemplation in whole new ways. Uh, I, I, I need to commend my, my confreres at the Center for Action and Contemplation for taking this on seriously. When somebody asked the question, why is everybody here white and middle-aged? Uh, they began to say, well, let's see why. And what they began to discover was that the, the pervasive uh, racist-based cultural assumptions did not make contemplation a comfortable, comfortable fit. Uh, for many people of, uh, of color. And they're dealing with that. You know, they, they, they hired a much more diverse, ethnically diverse faculty. Uh, they're, they're working to teach all students the language, you know, uh, of uh, race, justice, and equity. Uh, it's a good start. It's a brave start. And of course, it, it, it disrupts contemplative silence. People get angry and feisty. But you have to trust that, uh, that, that, that the real silence of contemplation is deeper than the absence of controversy. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence.
I would I would take that even further that that true contemplative silence cannot thrive where controversy is is squashed. But, you know, the, we we talk about on this podcast we talk about toxic silence. Yeah. You know, yeah. when when yeah. the silence that does not come out of the heart but the silence that is imposed. Yeah. Perhaps another another way to say it is that contemplation requires confrontation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, of ourselves and the world around us. Well, I mean, I think that's correct, Cassidy. I mean, I think that's kind of what this whole conversation has been about, you know, is that when uh, Cynthia before started this conversation of, well, you got to confront yourself, but you also, you're not just a self, you're part of a community. So the whole canonic path is going to be confrontation, you know? I mean, so exactly what you just said, Cassidy, I mean, how you can't do this without the confrontation of yourself and the world, you know? take the word confrontation and then play with that one a little bit too because confrontation usually implies anger Mm. but confrontation can also be done from a whole bunch of different bases like confrontation with compassion like when you confront your own shadow side to to hold it in the greatest tenderness Uh, confrontation can be done with forgiveness already built in confrontation can be done with reconciliation also based, built in. So I, I think that we need to, as we're, as we're working to explore this new languaging and visioning, uh, to see that one too, as, as having a different range and that, that the contemplative practice may give us some skills in, in understanding a different way of walking confrontation. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. You know, to think of maybe instead of confrontation of just facing turning to face one, you know, face-to-face yeah. meeting or something as opposed, because you're right, confrontation, it almost feels like we're getting ready to duke it out. And maybe, yeah. maybe it's yeah. about love. And again, like that switch from urgency to importance of like, hey, let's not come from this breathless, angry space. Let's yeah. come from this space of love that, but let's not turn away. Let's, we yeah, can't, exactly. we, we can't turn away. Maybe we could call it convocation rather than confrontation because <laughs> it's, oh. it's bringing things fiercely together and not letting them go apart and not letting one of them go hide under the rug but that can be done uh from a much higher place what i'm hearing is to always be mindful of where the hostility is and where the aggression is and and to be you know as relentless about dismantling my own aggression as i might be about wanting to dismantle aggression in society. So Cynthia, this subtitle of the book, The Imaginal Realm, could you speak a little bit about how that is and maybe is not related to our concept of the imagination? A little bit. A lot of people don't know the difference, you know, and that when the the subtitle is uh, uh, A Spiritual Journey into the Imaginal Realm, and in a way that that name was very badly chosen and it's caused a lot of unnecessary confusion. I like what you were doing very much, Kevin, with the idea of noetic is what we're really talking about, the noetic realm, uh, the realm that's generated by the noose or the higher, the higher mind, which is really the mind and the heart. Uh, but, but the term itself became current and and gained some popularity because it was provided by Henry Corbin, uh, that great Islamic scholar, to translate uh, 
you know, he actually used the word mundus imaginalis, a Latin thing, to translate the, the Islamic descriptions of this, this noetic realm. And so, so mundus imaginalis in his, in his great books quickly became imaginal realm. And, and falling on the ears of Westerners, that, became, that began to be heard as imaginary realm, which is just about the worst possible thing that could happen. Uh, it actually is the worst possible thing that could happen because in the, in the West, we've built this whole sort of art of the imagination where we conceive of the imagination as first of all, something personal and subjective and you go into a smaller world inside yourself and you think it up. And those that are really creative are those that have big imaginations. Uh, and those that have big imaginations are really creative. So it's inward, it's, it's inward and, uh, and, and it's very subjective. It's under the, 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 the stewardship of our individual being. And if there's any high, kind of higher hand on it, it is our archetypal self, you know, Jung got onto some of this, uh, this Islamic practice and westernized it in a way that, that, uh, you know, at least brought it to the West, but it also brought it to the West, uh, pretty much shorn of its basis in the original teaching. In the original, you know, Islamic teaching, as in all descriptions of the noetic world, first of all, it is completely, utterly real. It has a higher order of reality than the reality of this world, which is transient and shifty and linear. And it is, uh, it is objective, which means that it does not have, you don't go into it by individual psyches and it doesn't vary from psyche, psyche to psyche. It's a world of an objectively higher order of coherence and clarity that in the Gurdjieffian language that I use in the book, uh, it could be referred to as our world is world 48, said Gurdjieff, because we're basically under 48 laws. You know, we, we can only move in, you know, time moves forward, not backwards. You know, we can't walk through a post without getting our head banged. Uh, the imaginal realm moves swifter, more comprehensively. Truth is non-localized and global. It behaves a lot more in its, its causality, like what we've discovered is the causality in quantum physics. You know, instantaneous action, effect on all parts, uh, nonlinear, synchronous. It, it's just faster, more, more efficient, and it's objectively available to those that can access it, but accessing it doesn't, doesn't let you dig into your imagination and think into it. You have to essentially silence your subjective imagination in order to be able to let the impression of that higher order of reality uh, gradually sink into your being. And this is again, one of the major usefulnesses of contemplative practice. And a, a lot of people give you, you know, a lot of pushback when you're starting to do contemplative practice because they say, oh, but I don't want to give up my thoughts. I want to think my thoughts. God's giving me these messages and things like that without realizing that that's just keeping the squirrel cage going of subjective individualized appropriations. And that if you can just learn the act of holding absolutely still like a camera lens on slow, slow frame there until the thing impresses, then you see, and you see in a way that the tradition has claimed to be 
objective and impartial. And the more your own psyche is clear, not contaminated or not sort of excessively distorted by personal issues and, battle and baggage, the more clearly you will see. So much of the work that in Christianity we've gotten used to calling uh, the struggle against sin is in the other traditions, particularly the, the Buddhist and Sufi ones, simply framed in terms of, uh, of cleansing the lens of perception. You know, when you get rid of all this emotional baggage or at least get it under control, when you get rid of the self, the, the sense you're gonna find yourself at the tail end of your personal imagination, when you get quiet, clean, and still, then you see and you act from that higher sight. And when you act, you act with much more likelihood of acting according to the laws of miracle. You know, that, that many would say that the miracles that Jesus did that people feel are, you know, so outrageous and insulting to modern minds and want to throw out of the Bible are simply the laws of a higher causality uh, playing out in this causality. And they're, they're perfectly real and perfectly valid. And their point is not to give you stunning feelings here, but to remind you that, that this, were, this world works best when it's in alignment with imaginal reality and can draw on the strengths and insights that come to us there. And that is, in a sense, my whole purpose for writing the book, that, that in our postmodern, secular, rationalistic, egocentric, individualistic culture, we have lost our sense for truth. We don't know where to find help. We don't even realize there's anything to align with, much less that there's any virtue in aligning with it. And so we, you know, we fumble on as blind apex predators and wonder why any of this happened to us. So the book is really an effort to, to repackage and reconvey uh, perennial wisdom in a format that's accessible through contemplative practice and accessible to actually be, be put to practical application in the midst of our contracting and contractive universe. Uh, Cynthia, thank you for that. Um, I will say as somebody who works for Jesuits, I do find a little bit of resistance emerging. And also, I'm a little nervous to show you my new book, <laughs> because I, in my book, I really kind of explore the brackish waters between the imaginal and the imagination. And this idea that, that the imagination can be, and I'm speaking in the Ignatian sense, but, you know, so not the imaginary, but the imagination can be a way to access the imaginal. Do you, do you think that's a fair statement to say, or would you would you push back against that? I think it's a fair statement, but it needs far uh, stronger and more extensive development than I at least have found in, in Jesuit tradition. For uh, for the uh, basic Islamic teaching out of which it comes, imagination is not a personal faculty of an individual soul. Right. And it is an actual intelligence like love, will, attention, aim that, that has its own uh, intrinsic intelligence, its own purpose. And the, the, the Islamic mystics would always talk about the science of the imagination and that precisely 
as you were able to step out of the way and clarify that part that you tried to own for your your psyche and your soul uh you gained you gained greater sort of fluency in in wielding and, and conversing in the science of the imagination which really eventually melds at the outer edges with with some of the deepest of of shamanic teaching that that allows you to consciously with your will place the stream of imagination where the work can be done it's a very strong healing technique uh, the tibetan buddhists also are all onto it so i think that the jesuits have preserved a important part of it but it it it, it gets limited by the the tendency in christianity in general and western christianity in general to to limit the soul to the personal you know to the to the cleaned up ego mm. rather than understanding the uh the the souls upon souls upon souls that we have in in deeper worlds all with different densities and dimensions and to uh to shift off of that stubborn attachment to uh to my my journey in time and with all my emotional issues and adventures and complexes is the place where god sends messages i mean if we could get beyond that not debunking it but filling out how much broader and wider and deeper soul is then i think that we'd find the convergence between the two streams of teaching would get a lot more strong and clear cynthia could you recommend um any particular sufi or other muslim authors that would be helpful for those who wish to begin to explore the science of the imagination? Well, you can you can jump right into um, reading Ibn al-Arabi. That's where you will eventually wind up. And there's a there's a wonderful volume of his works in the classics of Western spirituality. So it's not that inaccessible. Um, there's some there's some interpretive guides. William Chittick has done some good work on that. A modern, a contemporary scholar. Henry Corbin? Yep. Henry Corbin, you can read Corbin and you know, certainly he's round exhaustively to take a look at, but but you need a you need a guide to Corbin in a way. Yeah. yeah. One of the people that I find very interesting to kind of just sort of touch base with is Thomas Burton. Mm-hmm. Because Thomas Burton got into this stuff by way of a French scholar named Louis Massignon. Yes. Who who, uh, who was be, translating some of the great Sufi texts on the prayer of the heart. And Merton has a very, very good innate sense uh, because he knows so many of the things that the, you know, the Sufi heart mysticism was talking about. He has a good sense uh, of what's actually being said in this teaching. Yeah. And so some of his comments, particularly in his, in his journals, as he's working his way through them. And of course, the piece that everybody, everybody loves of Merton, the, the one that they, they call a member of the human race, uh, you know, with the Poin Vierge and all that, uh, is, is pure Merton diving into Massignon. But I think in a way it's going to prove that, that Merton will, will show up as a, as a stronger and clearer interpreter and bridge between the traditions than we've given him credit for up to this point. Uh, there's a marvelous book that, that Gray Henry brought out in her series called Merton and Sufism, 
which I, I think is an absolutely indispensable book for people that are interested in it. It's a, it's a series of essays um, exploring Merton's in, increasing engagement with, with Sufism toward the end of his life. And I do think he has an intuitive, deep heart grasp of what's going on in these connections. Uh, and so it's, it's a good bridge to stand on so that you just don't drown in the waters of, of uh, you know, Henry Corbin or Chittick or even al Arabi. Where do you feel called to explore now at this moment in time? Are there any particular authors or teachers or new concepts that have fired your imagination? Well, I'm working on, you know, I continue to hold the, hold the line between Teilhard and Gurdjieff, who I think are saying something radically new and much more on the same page than, uh, than people would give them credit for. You know, that I think both of them are interpreted, misinterpreted by their chief interpretive legacy. So I continue to play with that. Uh, but where I'm called nowadays is more to action than to reading, you know. And I, I know in the, for the foreseeable future until we emerge from this tunnel that my, I'm called to and will be prioritizing on the ground work in small groups. Mm. Because mm. I think that's where, uh, for me at least, the rubber is hitting the road uh, mm. in terms of maximizing some of these things we've been talking about, generating some of these missing elements. Uh, so your prayers, uh, but that's that's what I'm up to. I've got a couple of retreats coming up at Garrison Institute in New York this fall, and uh, you know, and we've been having wisdom schools here in in Maine. Uh, so that's where yeah. I'm called. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. It's great. And good luck and congratulations and blessings on that work. Thank you, thank you. We'll see if I survive or <laughs> which world I survive in. <laughs> you know. Well, well, step step out in courage and and yeah. Yeah. be be where you're called to be. Thank you yeah. so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccolman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.